Well, we come now to our introduction to systematic theology. And we have reached our final lesson on this doctrine of God's eternal decree. In the previous two lessons, we have been considering the relationship between God and evil. We were told that there's this problem, quote unquote, of evil. We were told that it is contradictory and thus irrational to affirm that God is all good, that God is all powerful, and that God exists. As we noted, some do away with this problem by denying the existence of God. Others, including many professing Christians, attempt to reconcile this by toying around with the doctrine of God. God isn't as powerful as we might have originally thought, some say. Or perhaps God doesn't know everything, some say. Or perhaps God does know everything, but the way he comes to know everything is by observing and learning. Because after all, God has given man a quote-unquote free will by which man is freely independent. Man, when he is faced with incompatible courses of action, he is able to choose any course of action just as well as any other. He has the ability to choose between different possible courses of action with no obstacles, no obstruction. There's nothing that governs his thinking, and so man doesn't even know what he's going to choose from one moment to the next. And neither would God know if it weren't for the fact that God looked down through the corridors of time and observed what men would do. But beloved, none of these theories work. None of them are biblical. And I won't rehash the reasons why, because we did that in the last two lessons. But rather, what we have seen from Scripture is that God clearly, unequivocally, and unambiguously asserts that he is the first cause of all things, including evil. That God knows all things because he decreed all things, thinks all things into being. That God's power is not limited or restricted, and that it is man who is completely and totally dependent upon God and has a will that is governed by numerous factors, most notably the eternal decree of God. Yet even as clear as Scripture is on all of this, people still want to fight it. They still get uneasy. They don't want to believe it. Why? Well, I think there's a number of reasons why that may be. Pride, arrogance. But for many, I think there's this reason. If you recall, I brought attention to this reason by asking this question that I hope you've been thinking about the past two weeks. If God knew ahead of time, before he ever created Adam and Eve, that Adam and Eve were going to rebel and plunge the world into sin and darkness, why did he proceed to do it? As I mentioned, I've asked that question probably a thousand times to people over the years. And I get the same answer almost every time. I don't know. I don't know why he did it. And it's scary knowing that so many professing Christians don't know the answer to that question. Because what is the essence of the question, as we said? What does it really boil down to? Why are we here? What's the purpose in all this? What is the point? What is the end game? And the fact that so many don't know the answer to that question is one of the reasons, perhaps the main reason, why they see the existence of evil as a problem. Many people have a hard time seeing how evil fits into the plan because they don't even know what the plan is. Or if there, is, if there even is a plan to begin with. But once you understand the plan, then the so-called problem of evil vanishes. There is no problem. As Bonson said, the critic overlooks a perfectly reasonable way to assent to all of this 
that God is good, he is powerful, and he will exist, can be resolved by adding this fourth premise, that God has a morally sufficient reason for the evil which exists. So what is that reason? What is the plan here? What is the end game? Now I realize that when you, when you ask this question in this way, framed in this way, uh, some of you might not have thought about it or you know, you're not sure how to answer it, but if you really put on your thinking cap, and if you, especially if you've been at this church and been involved in our shorter catechism lessons, you actually know the answer already. It's just that you might not have thought about it from this angle or these terms. What is the first question and answer to the shorter catechism? You all know it. I bet Noel can quote it. What is the chief end of man? His chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Well, has it ever occurred to you that the answer to that question would be the same if you asked it this way? What is the chief end of God? God's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Now, if you think I'm just being goofy here and clever and you know, doing a little trick on you, I promise you that's not the case. That is the ultimate answer. And it's an answer that we see over and over and over again throughout the Bible. It's a golden theme, a thread that we see running from Genesis to Revelation. And I want to talk about that thread here in a second. But before we do that, I want you to listen to something John Piper says here. And this is not a, you know, a good uh, you know, recommendation for Piper. You know, he's, he's got some issues. But um, what he says here is so on point and so clear. And it addresses everything that we've been thinking about for the last six weeks. He said, one of the reasons it's hard to communicate biblical reality to modern secular people is that the biblical mindset and the secular mindset move from radically different starting points. What I mean by the secular mindset is not necessarily a mindset that rules God out of the picture or denies in principle that the Bible is true or may be true. It's a mindset that begins with man as the basic uh, given reality in the universe. So all of its thinking starts with the assumption that man has basic rights and basic needs and basic expectations. And then the secular mind moves from that, from out, from that center to interpret the world with man and his rights and his needs as the measure of all things. And so what the secular mindset sees as problems, like the problem of evil, are seen as problems because of how things fit or don't fit with what's at the center, man and his rights and his needs and his expectations. And what this mindset sees as successes are seen as successes because they fit with man and his rights and needs and expectations. Now this is the mindset we were born with and that our secular society reinforces virtually every hour of the day in our lives. Paul calls this mindset the mind of the flesh in Romans 8. It says that it is the way the natural person thinks, 1 Corinthians 2. It is so much a part of us that we hardly even know that it's there. We just take it for granted until it collides with another mindset, namely the one in the Bible. The biblical mindset is not simply one that includes God somewhere in the universe, 
and says that the Bible is true. Rather, it begins with a radically different starting point, namely God. God is the basic given reality in the universe. He was there before we were in existence or before anything was in existence. He simply is the most absolute reality. And so it's the biblical mindset that starts with the assumption that God is the center of reality. All thinking then starts with the assumption that God has basic rights as the creator of all things. He has goals that fit with his nature and perfect character. And then the biblical mindset moves out from that center to interpret the world with God and his rights at the goal uh, and his goals at the center. And so what the biblical mindset sees as basic problems in the universe are not the same problems that the secular mindset sees. Because what makes a problem is not first what fits with the rights and needs of man, but with the rights and goals of God. Is the basic riddle of the universe how to preserve man's rights and solve his problems, say the right of self-determination and the problem of suffering? Or is the basic riddle of the universe how an infinitely worthy God in complete freedom can display the full range of his perfections, what Paul calls the wealth of his glory, his holiness and power and wisdom and justice and wrath and goodness, truth and grace? you start with man at the center with the natural tendencies of the human heart to assert its rights and wants, you will assess the biblical teaching of justification very differently than you would if you started with God, with his goal to manifest all that he is so that he might be known and worshipped with a reverence and an awe and a joy that correspond to all that he really is in perfect proportion. Beloved, that's the answer. God delights in the glory of his manifold perfections. God wants to put on display the full range of his perfections, his holiness, his power, his wisdom, his justice, his goodness, his truth, his wrath, and his grace. Recall what we said about the glory of God back in Shorter Catechism, uh, question number one. We noted from Raymond that the Hebrew word translated for our English word glory is kabod, which means from the verb root meaning to be heavy. Apparently in the Hebrew mind, a person's importance was thought of in terms of weightiness. The Greek word translated glory is from doxa, from the verb root meaning to think, referring to a, the opinion a person has about himself or to what he thinks about or to what others think about him, that is his reputation. And while the Bible speaks of men's glory, for example, Jacob's wealth is called his glory in Genesis 3.11. And uh, while J uh, Joseph's position in Egypt is called his glory in Genesis 45.13. The Bible, however, mainly speaks of God's glory. And when it does, it refers to what God is in his essential being or nature. That is to say, God's glory is simply the inescapable weight of the sheer intrinsic godness of God inherent in the attributes essential to him as deity, end quote. So notice this glory of God that we're talking about. It's intrinsic to him. It is his nature being put on display. And because of this, when we talk about giving glory to God, we're not giving him something we're not adding to something that he lacks. 
Rather, what we mean is that we're lifting up and magnifying him in the eyes of others by our words and actions. It means that we view the weightiness of God as the most weighty of all things. It means that our opinion of God and what we think of him takes center stage in our lives. That's what it means for us to glorify God, but in that sense, it's no different for God. The lifting up and magnifying of himself is his chief aim and purpose in all things. God putting on display the full range of his perfections, his holiness, power, goodness, wisdom, justice, goodness, and truth. That is his chief purpose and aim in all of this. That is why he proceeded to create Adam and Eve, knowing full well what they were going to do. In fact, he decreed it to happen that way for that very purpose. Our confession of faith says in chapter 6, paragraph 1, our first parents being seduced by the subtlety and temptation of Satan, sinned in eating the forbidden fruit. This, their sin, God was pleased, according to his wise and holy counsel, to permit having purposed to order it to what? His own glory. And folks, if that's a problem for you that makes you uncomfortable, makes you uneasy, then consider what we just quoted from Piper. It is only a problem for you because God has not taken center stage in your life. He's not central to you in your universe. But it isn't a problem for those who would think and act biblically. As we said, this, this is the golden theme, this thread that runs all throughout Scripture. It is a theme that is central to God himself. God created us for his glory. Isaiah 43, 6 and 7 says, Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory. God called Israel for his glory. Isaiah 49, 3, You are my servant Israel in whom I will be glorified. In Jeremiah 13, 11, I made the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah cling to me, declares the Lord, that they might be for me a people, a name, a praise, and a glory. God rescued Israel from Egypt for his glory. Psalm 106, 7 and 8, Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works, but rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. Yet he saved them for his name's sake, that he might make known his mighty power. God raised Pharaoh up to show his power and glorify his name. Romans 9, 17, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. God defeated Pharaoh at the Red Sea to show his glory. Exodus 14, 4, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. God spared Israel in the wilderness for the glory of his name. Ezekiel 20, verse 14, I acted for the sake of my name, that it should be, not be profaned in the sight of the nations in whose sight I have brought them out. 
God gave Israel victory in Canaan for the glory of his name. 2 Samuel 7, verse 23, Who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people, whom you redeemed for Israel, or redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. God did not cast away his people Israel for the glory of his name. 1 Samuel chapter 12. We just read it last week. Do not be afraid, for you, uh, you have done as all is evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, for the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake. God saved Jerusalem from attack for the glory of his name. 2 Kings 19.34, For I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. Jesus sought the glory of his Father in all that he did. John 7.18, The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Jesus told us to do good works so that God gets the glory. Matthew 5, 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Jesus warned that not seeking God's glory makes faith impossible. John 5, 44, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. In John 14, 13, Jesus said that he answers prayers that God would be glorified. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Jesus endured his final hours of suffering for God's glory. In John 12, we read, Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. God forgives us our sins for his own sake. Isaiah 43. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Jesus receives us into the fellowship for the glory of God. Romans 15, 7 says, Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is to glorify the Son of God. In John 16, 14, he will glorify me for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. God instructs us to do everything for his glory. 1 Corinthians 10, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And all are under judgment for dishonoring God's glory. Romans 1, 22, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. In Romans 3, 23, for all have sinned and fall short of what? The glory of God. Herod was struck dead because he did not give glory to God. 
Acts 12, 23, immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. Even in wrath, God's aim is to make known the wealth of his glory. Romans 9, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, God has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory, the vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory. Everything that happens, happens for the glory of God. Romans eleven thirty six. for him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. And finally, when we get to Revelation, here we are at the end of the story. You think it's just going to deviate from this pattern? No. Revelation 21, 23. And the city has no need of sun nor moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light and its lamp is the Lamb. Beloved, could it be any clearer? And there's still stuff I left out of this list. How many times does God have to say it? It is God's chief end that he glorify himself, that he lift up and magnify himself, that he put on display the full range of his perfections, that he puts on display his holiness, his power, his wisdom, his justice, his goodness, his wrath, his truth, and his grace. Beloved, if you aren't down with that agenda, understand that in his universe, the problem is not with him, it's with you. Isaiah 48. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. What this text hammers home to us and Isaiah says, Piper, is the centrality of God in his own affections. The most passionate heart for the glorification of God is God's own heart. His ultimate goal is to uphold and display the glory of his name. And I want to ask you, is that where your heart is today? Is that your chief aim? What and who is central in your life? What and who is central to your thoughts. Did you think about school and possibly going to college? Did you think about your job and your career, your retirement? Did you think about that guy or that girl that you really like and you're thinking about dating or getting married to and having children? What is your ultimate aim in all of that? What is central? What is the predominant driving force that motivates you and governs how you assess all of this and work out all these things in your life? Is it God and his glory? Or is it you and some supposed rights, wants and necessities that you have divorced from God and divorced from his word and from his law? Beloved, grab a hold of this vision in the Bible. This is the plan. This is the end game. This is what it's all about. This is where everything is headed. And this is God's current business right now in the world. And if you don't grab a hold of that vision, 
You're going to suffer and perish in the end when God brings everything to a wrap. Well, I'm just about out of time. And some of you may be thinking, hey, weren't you supposed to talk about predestination today? <laughs> yes, I was. The doctrine of predestination obviously takes up a big portion in chapter 3 of God's eternal decree. And I was telling JP earlier, originally I was going to spend most of my time talking about that. But the more and more that I thought about this, the more I came to realize that the doctrine of predestination isn't going to grip you like it should, or it may not even grip you at all, if you don't first grab a hold of this vision of the glory of God in this golden thread that we've talked about, in this ultimate aim of his, of putting on display the full range of his perfections. Once you get a hold of that, predestination isn't really a problem anymore. It's not that, I mean, you know, it's tough, but it's not hard. It's not difficult. It's not impossible. It isn't seen as a problem. Some men and angels says our confession are predestined unto everlasting life and others foreordained to everlasting death. Why? The first part of that tells you why. By the decree of God for the manifestation of his glory. Paragraph five of the confession, same chapter says, those of mankind that are predestined unto life, God before the foundation of the world was laid, according to his eternal and mutable purpose, and the secret counsel and good pleasure of his will hath chosen in Christ unto everlasting glory out of his mere free grace and love without any foresight of faith or good works or perseverance in either of them or in anything in the creature as conditions or causing or causes moving him thereunto and all to the praise of his glorious grace. And it goes on in paragraph seven. The rest of mankind, God was pleased according to the unsearchable counsel of his own will, whereby he extended and withholdeth mercy as he pleaseth for the glory of his sovereign power over his creatures to pass by and to ordain them to dishonor and wrath for their sin to the praise of his glorious justice. Do you see what's driving all of this? Are you, are you getting it? God chose to save some people. Why? To the praise of his glorious grace. For his name's sake, God chose to pass over others and not save them. Why? To the praise of his glorious justice and the glory of his sovereign power. For his name's sake, for his glory. What shall we say then? That we're in righteousness with God? Certainly not. Doesn't it amaze you that, you know, the objections that we think about when we hear stuff like this, Paul, Paul deals with it right there in the text. It's right there. Well, Jason, if all this is true, this unrighteousness with God and saving some and not saving others, what's Paul's answer? Where he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up, that I may show my power in you and that my name might be declared in all the earth. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills, and in whom he wills, he hardens. Which you will say to me then, well, why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? But indeed, O oh man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor 
and another for dishonor? What if God wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he had prepared beforehand for glory? Do you not see it, beloved? That is what is central in this universe. It's not you. It's God. And what is central to God is his glory. It is the display of his perfections, his holiness, his power, wisdom, justice, wrath, goodness, truth, and grace. Predestination isn't a problem if what is central to your life matches what is central to God's thoughts. Paul says in Ephesians, Blessed be God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. Could be any plainer. It's pretty, it's, it's just right there. <laughs> I remember when I was in New Orleans, I started asking some students, I said, hey, what do you guys do with this predestination stuff? Like, well, you sound like a Calvinist. I'm like, who the heck is Calvin? <laughs> I, had no, I had no idea who he was. The word's right there in the text. Well, why do we have a problem with it? Verse six, to the praise of the glory of his grace. That's the, that's the end game. That's the purpose. And we don't understand the purpose. Either we don't want to see it or, we, or we're ignorant to it. He goes on, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he had purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. In him also we have obtained an inheritance being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, which is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Beloved, is that your vision? Is that your concern today? Is the glory of God central to your life? Predestination is not an end to itself. And that's what I want to be careful of because if I spent the whole time just talking about predestination, you might think that that's the point. But it's not. It is a means to an end. May it be said of us that we desire above all things to see our Lord's manifold perfections be put on display. That his holiness, his power, his wisdom, his justice, his wrath, his goodness, truth, and grace be revealed and known throughout all the earth to the praise of his glorious name. May we be a people about that business.